Welcome. This is Barry Baines from Baines Law, a legal miscellany where we regularly podcast about cases and legal issues, as well as talking to professionals and others who have experience of our legal system. Today's guest was called to the Bar of England and Wales in 1967, became Queen's Counsel in 1989, and was elected as a bencher of Gray's Inn in 2007. He is the president of the Haldane Society of Socialist Lawyers and professor of law at City University. Head of Nexus Chambers, he has been described as the king of human rights work by the Legal 500 and a leading silk in civil liberties and human rights. He has participated in many prominent and controversial cases and inquests involving accused IRA members, the Birmingham Six, the Bloody Sunday Massacre, the Hillsborough Disaster, and the deaths of Jean-Charles de Menezes and Dodi Al-Fayed. He currently represents families of those involved in the Grenfell Tower Inquiry and the Salisbury Novichok poisoning. We extend a very warm welcome today to Michael Mansfield, QC. Michael, thank you very much for joining us today. Pleasure. Some think that the rule of law has been so undermined in recent times, particularly by those who make it, that a large proportion of the public have lost faith in the concept. And I have in mind recently, of course, the breaches of COVID regulations by members of government and those advising it, and members of parliament lobbying on behalf of outside organisations from whom they receive payments. Can faith in the rule of law be restored in your view? Uh, <clears throat> I think it can be. I think it has to be because there isn't much else left if once that goes and and in fact once as a lawyer you know you're hanging on to that vestige because the democratic system and the ballot box have really uh, been devalued by uh, a succession of politicians who ha have really uh, I think performed in a way that politicians, I suppose, always have performed. In other words, at the end of the day, their interest is power, and they'll do anything to get it and do anything to hang on to it. So basically, and that's why I think the clash between uh, the Supreme Court and the politicians and the judiciary and the politicians over the last uh, three decades, where the rule of law has been upheld by the courts, uh, particularly in relation to how previous governments were dealing with detention, Belmarsh and terrorist offences, and then obviously bringing it up to date, how, how the politicians were attempting, Boris in particular, Johnson, to prorogue Parliament without a, a, a democratic, as it were, endorsement and so on. So... At the end of the day, I never thought I'd hear myself saying it, the judiciary, in fact, have provided a, a form of bulwark against all of this to ensure that there's, and I'll put it as a vestige, a vestige is kept. And of course, at the present time, you've just mentioned sort of what's been going on during COVID, which is utterly despicable. I chaired the People's uh, COVID inquiry and... Uh, there was a lot revealed by that along those lines. And I think the nation as a whole got it. And funnily enough, the party is thin end of the wedge, although it's got more publicity than anything else. But it just indicates an arrogance 
bipolar, not just Boris, but the whole lot of them. In other words, they can go on partying while Rome burns. And it's pretty, as I say, despicable that it's like that. And of course, now he, he's got himself into the Ukrainian issue, where again, the rule of law is being broken by uh, a government, the international rule of law. Uh, and again, that I'm afraid is something that's been done, not just by Russia, America's done it. And um, the United Kingdom have broken the rule of law, which goes back to the Iraq war and the march, which I went on and all the rest of it. So this, this is a big issue. <clears throat> it seems to me that as a lawyer, the, the one part I can play, small though it may be, is to ensure that as far as possible, we don't lose sight of it. We remind people that it matters. It's the only way in which you can, in some sort of civilized way, some sort of reasoned way, bring an element of accountability back into our system. So as you can tell, I feel very strongly about this area and where it's all gone wrong. And I'm afraid, you know, when Tony Blair uh, intervened as in the way that they did in a military way, uh, they set the scene. In other words, carte blanche to other nations to do exactly the same. It's hardly surprising that that is what is going on now. Uh, and therefore, I think it's we need to reinvest in a United Nations that works. It doesn't work at the moment because the big nations veto everything. So it, it's all got to be looked at again when there's a moment. I hoped COVID might bring us to our senses. Maybe it still will. We've tolerated all this dirty money in London, for example, for years. And now the efforts of government to make appear to be a little tokenistic, to say the least. Yeah. No, I think, um, what, are they, what are they calling London grad? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, it isn't it isn't just the Tory party, although they're, they're prime and, and flagrant in the way they have espoused foreign money in this way and investments in this way. And I believe that one of the companies uh, linked to HS2, for example, have connections with Russia. So it follows the money in a sense. Uh, and principle has been thrown to the wind. We do all sorts of deals with countries which have got appalling records in human rights. So um, I appreciate that you know, a lot of countries do. You might end up doing no trade at all if that was the only criteria. But it seems to me that that has become way down the agenda. And I also think it's, it's illustrated currently by a Home Secretary who is living on another planet. I wish, in fact, she did live on another planet because her attitude towards particularly the immigrant issue at the moment is... is appalling the, the way they've been treated in other words you know mothers who've left or have left their husbands behind because they're fighting have to prove pretty well well they say they're changing it now but the initial response was basically prove who you are and oh by the way you've come to the wrong center it's not in calais it's in lille oh sorry we're not ready in lille yet you have to go to paris these are people with no money no resources nothing what is the matter with these people and Pretty Patel is the face of it. So, I, and her attitude to lawyers is pretty um, uh, unacceptable as well. I wonder if I can move on to human rights, as uh, you're one of the country's foremost human rights lawyers. And, and I wonder what you make of the present government proposals to reform human rights laws. Do you see it as an attack on the European Convention of Human Rights, thereby placing more power in the hands of the executive? or a step in the right direction under what the government calls its enduring commitment to liberty under the rule of law? 
Well, that's very an interesting question. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's got anything to do with liberty. Uh, and it's um, very interesting, the libertarian view of this, which surfaced in the House of Commons recently when a number of Tory MPs stood up to defend the anti-vaxxers and the protest and all the rest of it on the basis that we have a right to choose and independence and all that. I've never heard Conservative MPs standing up for uh, those kind of, well, most of them. There are one or two exceptions, uh, Kenneth Clark being one of them, but that they espouse that principle suddenly, you know, freedom to do X, Y, and Z uh, comes into the forefront. So I don't think, you know, freedoms are something that readily come to uh, as it were, the the average politician, certainly on the conservative side, uh, labor a bit more. But uh, uh, to answer your question, yeah, I think I w w when they first mooted uh, this reform, which was some years ago now, they said they wanted to reform it and we have our own Bill of Rights. Well, you know, what are they really talking about? Let's take the right to life. Is, is it that the British right to life is different from everybody else's? I mean, when you're dealing with fundamental rights, it seems to me the convention and the UN Charter and all the rest of it have phrased it and framed it very explicitly. And I think what it is about this apparent need to control and uh, executive control. And, it, and in fact, you've got a, the colour of it through the present prime minister's attitude to the rule of law and to parliament. At the end of the day, once he got his majority, he ended up doing what Hailsham predicted, of all people, predicted a sort of elected dictatorship. And that's what we've got, an elected dictatorship. They've got the votes, well, we do what we want. I think the electorate may be just waking up to the license that they've provided him with. And our system doesn't prevent this except the judiciary. So I think reconfiguring the, uh, the human rights in a in a sense it, it doesn't make any sense because the basic ones are self-evident and if it's that they don't like the protocols and covenants that go with all these social and economic rights and so on which they don't because they associate those rights with you know workers rights and the average person's rights and challenges to government which is why you know they're trying to put put a judicial review on the back burner they don't want people to challenge them so I think that their object in redrafting all of this is to ensure that the public don't have the right to protest on the streets, or at least not very effectively, and don't have the right to challenge in court, or at least not very effectively. So they give themselves an autonomy. So that's why they don't want a European, as it were, route to rights. But of course, if they do depart from the European Convention of Human Rights very much, it's going to place us in difficulty with our co-signatories, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's, it's a, a, well, I'm not a Brexiteer, as it might, might, might be obvious, I'm a Remainer, but I'm not doing it from a sort of a didactic point of view or, or some kind of um, theory that it is um, embedded in my head or something of that kind. It's not a preset, predetermined uh, perception, but... I think that leaving Europe and all the other things, well, I think, in fact, in a sense, diverging for a moment. I mean, what's happening to Russia is, is very is interesting that people are just withdrawing support uh, in all sorts of fields. And I think when we withdraw our support for basic principles, which I think we are about to do in what they have planned, 
then the co-signatories, as you put it, and the people who felt we were all part of the same legal club, if you like, uh, are going to find it really difficult to do business with us because one, they won't trust us any more than we trust Russia at the moment. They won't trust us. Uh, and there is already severe tension, I think, on that front. So uh, I think it will bring about, I mean, one of the areas, for example, the whole business about the border in the Irish Sea, the Northern Irish Protocol, and so on. It, it's, um, it's a mess. And it's, it's born out of a situation, I think, which is jingoist. Uh, boundaries, in a sense, are, are, can be a, a false way of measuring what is going on. But I, I, I think that what um, Boris has tried to do, and others, he's not the first one, to create this, this individualism is, is detrimental. And therefore, I think it will, it will affect, in a sense, what has been a street, I mean, when you think that after the Second World War, in Churchill and others, in fact, it was conservatives who were at the root of the construction of a, a new, as it were, framework of law internationally, and the, that suddenly they're disavowing and saying, no, it's not applicable. It applied then, but doesn't apply now. Uh, and if they're universal rights, they applied then and they apply now. The, the government considers that free speech has been unduly limited in favour of privacy by the Strasbourg court, as interpreted by the British courts. One of the difficulties, of course, is making general rules about matters which are always highly fact-specific, as highlighted in the recent Supreme Court case of Bloomberg. Do you consider the law to be satisfactory as it stands, or might the government be in danger of upsetting a difficult balancing exercise? And this is this is complex and rather difficult one to answer directly in the sense that there is a balancing exercise. And I think on the one hand, you, you do want transparency, certainly in political matters and certainly by government, because I, I think we're, we're none of us trusting quite rightly of what government agencies may profess to say and profess to do. And that was clear, as you, you put a bit earlier in the procurement exercise during COVID, and there will be more revealed, I suspect, on that front in relation to the COVID public inquiry, which get, may get underway this year. So I think that on the one hand, the, the transparency of government is important, but at the same time, you know, the, the boundaries of privacy are also uh, important because uh, you have at the door uh, of all our lives, not only a global economy, but a global te technique of surveillance, which governments make use of. And this was the whole point about WikiLeaks and the rest of it is revealing the extent to which government agencies through global corporations are able to track and trace, not just on a COVID front, but actually know exactly who you are, where you are, uh, and what you're buying, what you're doing, and all the rest of it. So we're living, we're way beyond, you know, Orwell's a vision of, of 1984, my God, that's well past now. And with the advent of 5G to which I'm imposed, there isn't a thing in, in that, that resides where you're working or you're living or I'm working, living, that isn't connected in some way. So the aspect of privacy, in a sense, has already practically been demolished because I'm trying to, I'll, I'll give one example, uh, Alexa, uh, you know, it, it, it's a two-way process. Alexa is picking up conversations, even when it's turned off. Your fridge is doing the same. And, you know, people have got to recognize that we're now in a connected society. It may have some advantages, but it has a lot of disadvantages. 
And I don't think the, the, the law has really caught up with the extent to which the tentacles of intrusion are pretty well everywhere. And I'm, I try to be cautious, but the fact is, you know, every time I use a mobile phone, I'm concerned that, you know, that the material on the motor or that I speak about or record on my phone can get hacked into very easily by those who um, know how to do it. I don't myself, but I, I think the lawmakers have to catch up because they have to ensure that the legislation is there to protect us from invasion. And that isn't really happening. So when you get, for example, the, um, I run a charity with my wife called SOS, that's a mental health welfare charity, is when you, you get, as far as I can see now, on the social media, the media highway, you get really intrusive, disgusting, and revealed recently bullying, and they're sort of videos which are encouraging you to take your own life, snuff movies, and so the only way you can do anything about it is you have to try and persuade Google or one of these things that, that, that this kind of material cannot be countenanced. It's not acting like Mary Whitehouse. It's not passing a moral judgment. It's where you are allowing material onto the social media highway, which is extremely dangerous. It's as dangerous, if not more so, than, you know, almost, but not quite, as a chemical weapon, which they're talking about at the moment. So I think the law has got to go a long way and we've got to recognize that the companies do control communications, which now is huge because we don't do anything without a Zoom. So I, I think that's, that's what's got to be looked at more carefully with more rigorous inspection. Um, and I think at the moment, because of the money involved, is, there's a sort of a reluctance to go, to, uh, to go into all these, these areas. So the balance has not been struck, I don't think, properly. But I wonder if I can now change tack a bit and move to uh, representation and legal aid funding, which in recent years, as you know, has gone from bad to worse. The general funding of the criminal justice system is now so appalling that the criminal bar is contemplating action against the government. We have a situation where those who can afford representation get it, but an awful lot have minimal or no representation. What's your analysis of that and how do you see it evolving? I've been uh, involved in campaigns, and I have to say the Labour government were in the vanguard of legal aid change. So it's, again, not confined to uh, a Conservative government. And I think uh, it, it's shameful what has happened, because originally, at the end of the Second World War, I sound like John Cleese in a shoebox, but, you know, when I was a boy, legal aid, the health service and so on, and education for all, were major pillars of a new society being built. Clement Attlee did a quite remarkable speech at the Central Hall Westminster in, I think it was 1946. I've only seen it on film, needless to say, but he had a real vision of a, 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 of a society in which we, we're not all the same, but we're given as equal an opportunity as, as is possible, given the resources, whether it's housing, education, legal support, health support, and that, that, that's a, it's a wonderful vision, and it took off. And the seeds of all of this were planted then. But I'm afraid, you know, with the advent of Thatcherism and all that, all these assets have been stripped away, been put out to tender in the private marketplace. And we have a health service which is on its knees and was on its knees before COVID, never mind COVID's 
the effect of COVID. And I don't know that people have necessarily recognized the way in which the public have been misled about how resources have been deployed. So I, I think that legal aid falls into this bracket. When I, when I started, very little legal aid was available. So I, I've seen it all. So when I started, I was obviously doing little bits of work. So it, it wasn't so obvious. And as the, the longer I stayed, obviously, legal aid grew. And so the majority of people can't afford to pay for a lawyer to defend them for, well, even one day or two days, or sometimes the cases go on for weeks, sometimes months. So it's got to be, it's got to be uh, funded centrally by the state uh, for most people because the criminal allegation, whether it involves a prison sentence at the end of it or not, is extremely serious for most people. You don't want a record. So I, I see it as a fundamental right. There's no point in having conventions protecting rights or having bills of rights if you can't access them and you can't enforce them. And so at the end of the day, the lawyers prepared to do you know, public service work, which on the whole I've done. I've done some private work as well, but basically 90% of my work has been legal aid from the beginning. And therefore, myself and others who come through that generation are, are deeply affected by what is going on at the moment, although I'm getting on in age, as you can probably tell. But I'm concerned about the next generation and the one below that, because people are leaving the bar. Now, the same has happened with solicitors, that doing criminal legal aid, if, if you can get it, is just not workable because they can't cover their expenses. So that means you don't get the, the, the solicitors who are really competent at doing this work just saying they can't carry on doing it. The government, to some extent, isn't bothered. Why isn't the government bothered? Of whatever hue, they're not bothered because they don't want lawyers Basically, they see them as a, an interference. Tony Blair talks about it. Pretty Patel talks about it. We're seen as some, some kind of lawfare is the common word that is used. So I, I don't think they have a real interest in ensuring that, that, that it's properly funded. Of course, if they're asked, they will pay lip service to the need for a properly funded service. So I think and unless this government or whoever succeeds, uh, if Boris stays on, uh, has got to face certain reality. And if the only way of bringing home the reality, uh, unheard of in my younger days for the bar, in fact, I think it was forbidden to come out, well, not quite on strike, but almost, so, uh, a no-returns policy and so on, that they, they're asking the Criminal Bar Association to sign up to. Uh, they're having to take a form of direct action in order to make it clear that, you know, people can't survive. And, and there's the common analogy that, uh, most junior barristers, middle-ranking barristers even, get paid less than somebody who comes to amend your tap. So uh, I'm not saying that plumbers shouldn't be paid what they're paid. What I'm saying is barristers or lawyers or solicitors should be paid, you know, a living wage to do what they do. And I think the thing has, been, has come out of control. Now, I appreciate there are lots of demands on the economy, national health, legal aid, housing and at the moment obviously they're just innumerable but what interests me is that when the need arises as it did over covid it's quite remarkable how trillions of money can suddenly be culled out of the air because it had to be to build um you know nightingale hospitals or whatever they had to do at that time because they hadn't prepared properly money was found i'm a firm believer that if they want to you know spend the money they can find it because they have a 
prognosis about the expansion of the, 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 the national productivity rate and the fact that it can bounce back, they can begin to pay back debt. But it's a nation. All the nations are living in debt anyway, and Russia's about to write theirs off. So, you know, it is possible to fund these things if you want to, which, of course, the government wanted to in relation to the beginning of COVID because it was to deal with survival. Well, legal aid is to deal with is dealing with survival. And I think, you know, it's not been paid sufficient regard you know, because successive governments in effect, have a, ra- a rather disdainful attitude. Although if you look at the House of Commons, one of the biggest interest groups, funnily enough, are lawyers. Yes, I suppose this really neatly dovetails into what I want to ask lastly, which is in order to get maximum discount of one third off sentence, defendants are being asked to tender a guilty plea or to indicate a guilty plea at the very first appearance before a magistrate's court, usually when they've not seen the evidence against them and often have not had legal advice. What would you say to those people who say, well, they know if they did it? Uh, I have strong views about this one because... Uh, obviously, having been involved in a large number of high-profile miscarriages of justice, as they were called in the 1980s, Birmingham 6, Judith Ward, Tottenham 3, Cardiff 3, God knows, there are hundreds of them. My concern is that when you have, as they do in the States, a very heavy system of plea bargaining, so that you you know that you can get a lot of discount one way or another in relation to sentence, whatever the proportion, depending on where you are and the offence and so on. It puts an enormous pressure on people who really are innocent because if they're having to pay for it, it means they certainly don't want to spend a lot of money on a trial. Secondly, if it means they might not go to prison and they avoid that risk, they're prepared to take it. In other words, they're having to balance their innocence against these other factors. And if you put on top of that, you know, the fact is the earlier you do it, the better. And obviously it's not a, the question isn't, they must know whether they did it. Yes, well, I'm sure they do know whether they did it. My concern is for those who didn't do it, but feel constrained. And of course there are quite a number of the early miscarriage cases were where basically um, although they didn't plead guilty, that there were cases where you know, they felt under severe pressure because the evidence is very strong or whatever it was. But once you put people under pressure, whether it's a pressure of an interview or pressure that they will get time off, you are going to encourage the risk of more miscarriages coming in through the back door. In other words, once you've pleaded guilty, it is extremely difficult to undo it unless it's an equivocal plea. Uh, in other words, um, that you didn't make it entirely clear, or you can honestly say you were misadvised, which means having a go at the lawyers probably, or you um, were not ad- advised about the elements of the law and all the rest of it. And you'd have to get the lawyers on board to su- say they'd made a mistake and they didn't give you the right. And uh, Or you're mentally ill or something of that kind. Other than those extreme circumstances, changing a plea of guilty whenever it goes in, um, withdrawing it even within the same proceeding so you say well I pleaded guilty on a couple of weeks ago but I want to plead not guilty now the court's going to look at it very skeptically and you may not be allowed to withdraw it you have to have pretty good reasons so it seems to me it is a license to as it were traverse justice and there should be and there should be no pressure of that kind being placed on people there should be a recognition 
that if you have pleaded guilty and in addition to that it's a case where you can show real remorse and and you can in convey to the court that the plea that you went wasn't just uh, done for the sake of it it's done because you really did do it you were really involved you're upset for the victims and, all, and a lot of people don't do don't do this but i think in those circumstances then it should be understood in the system that people who fall into that bracket of a genuine plea with a genuine remorse they get something taken up but if you pleaded guilty you don't necessarily get a get a discount for this if in fact it, it may have been just token so i think it, it, you know it, it it needs to be looked at very carefully and i've been i know that the argument the other way is economic or oh, we get people through the courts much quicker people are much happier they're out of the courts and all the rest of it then in which case it's supermarket justice uh, and i think you know i i hope we don't descend into an arena where justice becomes a parking ticket yes i'm afraid supermarket justice seems to sum it up doesn't it yeah Michael, it's been a great pleasure talking to you today. I know this was a diversion as you were heavily involved with the Grenfell Inquiry, and may I wish you every success for your efforts on behalf of the families involved in that. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Bain's Law. Listen out for future podcasts where we will continue to discuss issues of interest to the legal community. If there is a professional perspective that you would like to share, get in touch via our website at www.barrybaines.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Baines Law. We look forward to presenting to you again very soon on Baines Law.